0: Sefer Shmot Parshat Shmot on infanticide. This week's Parsha is Shmot the first portion of the book of Exodus, and today we're going to be discussing a heavy topic, but first a little background. At the end of the book of Genesis, the family of Jacob has settled down in Egypt under the special protection of the Pharaoh, and especially Pharaoh's second-in-command, Jacob's son Joseph. At the very end of Genesis, Joseph dies at the age of 110 years old, but not before he promises his family that God will take them back up out of the land of Egypt and makes them promise that when that happens, they should bring his own mummified bones out of Egypt with them. So there's a little foreshadowing that as great as things were at the moment in Egypt, there will come a time that the children of Israel will need to leave. And then we open the book of Exodus, and a generation ticks past. Joseph and his brothers have all passed away, but their descendants are still doing great in Egypt, flourishing and growing as people. But the passage of a generation means a new pharaoh has come to power also, who didn't have the same relationship with Joseph's family. He sees the success and flourishing of the children of Israel as a bad thing, as a threat to the Egyptians. Sadly, we today are still very familiar with this xenophobic fear of minority groups, and we know too from our own experience that powerful, privileged segments of society can easily develop a sense of their own victimhood when they see the historically powerless gaining rights and freedoms or growing in number or influence. These phenomena are major drivers of hate, violence, and division today, and as we see from the book of Exodus throughout history— which brings us to the verse we're going to be focusing on. In chapter 1, verse 16, the king of Egypt says to the midwives, Shifra and Pua, when you deliver the Hebrew women, look at the birth stool. If it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. Pharaoh orders infanticide of all the male Hebrew babies born. There's other places where the Torah talks about different kinds of infanticide. Intimate within the family or ritual child sacrifice. But in this episode in Shemot, we are talking about infanticide in the context of an oppressive political system. Let's talk about what infanticide means as a part of cultural repression and societal power structures, and why it's still so painfully relevant to us today. All killing is terrible, but the killing of children touches us as a particularly heinous act because children are blameless, are innocent, also children's death is inherently premature, abundant future life and possibilities are being taken from them. And also because children represent the future of a family, of a people, of all of us. And so infanticide represents the cutting off of the future. And infanticide targeting a particular group is a devastation of that group's future. Infanticide, genocide, and cultural genocide The attempt to annihilate a culture, even if not all the living human members of it are intimately related. Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg, in her book, The Particulars of Rapture, discusses how our tradition contains different opinions on what the state of Israelite culture was in Egypt. Had the Israelites lost their distinct identity and culture before they were enslaved? And is that loss of self part of why Paro enslaved them and ordered their infanticidal destruction? Or did the Israelites, in fact, maintain important aspects of their tradition? And did their guarding of their uniqueness lead to their oppression and also to their ultimate redemption? All of these possibilities are represented in our tradition. In particular, some sources say that the Israelites continued to perform circumcision in Egypt, while some say they lost that part of their identity and covenant. Some sources say the Israelites maintained their distinctive names in each generation, And some describe them as becoming a completely nameless and aimless horde. Both of these examples, naming and circumcision, have to do with infants, with giving newborns their identities within the community. These contradictions in how we remember our time in Egypt point to the truth that oppressive infanticide exists within the tension of assimilation and distinctness. Children have been the particular targets of forced assimilation and cultural genocide in North America as well. Indigenous peoples in this continent have faced genocidal murder and expulsion from their lands, and also efforts to, quote, civilize them, really to erase their culture at the hands of white European colonizers. One of the techniques the colonizer governments of the U.S. and Canada have used to execute that cultural genocide has been systems of residential schools. The government separated Indigenous children by force from their families and their tribes and inculcated the children of the colonizer culture, actively suppressing Indigenous languages, wisdom, and traditions. The approach was summarized in the phrase, kill the Indian and save the man, or kill the Indian and save the child, or kill the Indian in the child. The perpetrators may claim that they are using cultural murder instead of physical murder, but actually physical murder and cultural murder are inseparable parts of the same evil project. This fact is chillingly apparent given the rate of mortality of the children who attended the residential schools. The school administrations and colonizer governments have tried to cover up that reality. A few years ago, over 700 unmarked graves or graves whose markers had been removed were found on the grounds of just one residential school in Canada. Graves of indigenous children who had died while attending the school, and more and more continue to be found at such institutions throughout the US and Canada. The discovery of those graves in North America resonates with another midrash about the Hebrew children in Egypt. According to this tradition, when God was deciding whether or not to punish Egypt for the oppression of the Israelites, the angel Michael sent the angel Gabriel to bring evidence against the Egyptians. Gabriel removed a brick from the wall of an Egyptian building and brought it to God. The brick contained a Hebrew baby encased inside of it, literally physically assimilated into the construction of Egyptian civilization. In that moment, according to the Midrash, when God saw that cruel sight, God immediately drowned the Egyptians. God was outraged at the cruelty, and we are also outraged at the cruelty. How can we, the whole world, protect all children of all tribes from being buried in an oppressor's buildings? When Shifra and Pua refused to participate in Pharaoh's infanticidal plan and instead let the boys live, or more literally translated, enlivened the children. A beautiful commentary, Midrash by Rivka Lubitsch, tells that the midwives did more than simply not kill the newborns. Shifra and Puah's enlivening of the children was a positive act. They gathered children to the bedside of the birthing women. And after attending to the birth, those two midwives would then enliven the gathered children with teachings of Torah. According to Lubich's Midrash, when the verse says that God established households for the midwives, those households were in fact Bate Midrash, houses of study. Which the midwives transformed every mother's house into with their teaching. We too need to hold on to our traditions and to teach them to our children. And looking outward, we are called to build societies in which not only every child has their needs met as individuals, but every community has the resources and the freedom it needs to raise their children within their own traditional wisdom and thus ensure the survival of every unique and precious culture. Shabbat shalom.